0: This is Pastor Devin, and I just want to say thanks for joining us, and I hope and pray that this message is an encouragement to your life today. We are coming down the home stretch of our current series, study on the book of James, and we have just a few weeks remaining, and if you're a guest with us today, uh, we've basically been going line by line, verse by verse, through this wonderful book of James, often referred to As the Proverbs of the New Testament, written by the half-brother of Jesus. And boy, if there's anything that really speaks to the divinity of Jesus, I don't know if there's anything that speaks more to the divinity of Jesus other than the fact that James, his brother, first of all, surrenders his life to the lordship of Christ. And then he writes this epistle to Jewish believers as he's pastoring the church uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, This week, we pick it up at the beginning of chapter 4. Just to give a little context, last week we talked about godly, heavenly wisdom versus worldly, earthly wisdom, the differences between the two and how we are to pursue godly wisdom in our lives. And if you remember, James says that the characteristics of worldly wisdom are bitterness, envy, jealousy, and selfish ambition, uh, which then leads to the idea that my happiness is uppermost in my affections, and if there is a God... Certainly, he's all about my happiness, too. And when you become the center of your world, you become offended when you're not the center of everyone else's world. And James says that earthly wisdom, one that's filled and driven by bitterness and envy and jealousy and ambition, that leads to disorder and practice of every evil. Uh, That's exactly what happens. When you walk in false wisdom, because there's no truth except what you decide is truth. And there's no end except for your happiness. So no matter who gets hurt or heartbroken or left behind, your concern is your happiness. And that, James says, is false wisdom. And he goes on to argue that godly wisdom will lead us to the fullest life possible. And last week we talked about how to measure godly wisdom In our lives, does it align with godly principle? Does it respond with godly motive? And does it result in service with a godly purpose? So let me just remind us this morning that we don't read the Bible like an article. Uh, We don't read it just to memorize verses without without allowing those verses to read us. So so that frames where James goes here in chapter 4. Verse 1, we pick it up here, and this is how he opens up the fourth chapter. He does with a question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, that doesn't get any more on the ground uh, than that. Anyone anyone here that would like to say, nope, not me. No fights, no quarrels in the last year. I, I can only think of peace in my life. No, most of us from time to time myself included, uh, have relational conflict and quarrels. Uh, Let me also say that all disagreements are not evil. Uh, But the type of disagreement that James is referring to here and describing is one that is birthed out of a disordered heart. And although the conflict gets externalized, the real conflict, James says, is internal. You look at the rest of that first verse. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? James answers the question with a question. So what causes the quarrels? What causes the fights? What causes the conflict? It's not necessarily what's going on around you, but it's rather something that's going on inside of you. Have you ever responded or reacted, and when you did, you thought to yourself, I know that I have done this. Where did that come from? Why why did I respond? Why did I react with such anger? Why was I so short? What triggered that? Let me just say this. Whenever there is emotion, without an explanation, there's something deeper going on inside of you. And James reiterates this idea about quarrels and disagreements. I love the way that the message reads in that first verse. It says this, do you think they just happen? think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside of yourselves. The Living Bible says it this way. Isn't it because there is an entire army of evil desires within you? (laughs) Let's Let's just be honest this morning. We are dark, perverted people. We are. And if we knew, if we knew that we could get away with it, we would do The most horrific things. If we knew that there was no cost, no no repercussion, and there was no judgment to come, we would give ourselves over to the most deplorable, dark things imaginable. Why? Because the conflict isn't based on circumstances and personalities. It's based on our spiritual reality. It's something internal. Verse 2. You want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. We're not talking here about physical murder, but what we're talking about is character assassination. So you want what you don't have. You scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Verse 3. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong and you want only what will give you pleasure. I certainly don't want to oversimplify this, but people's lives tend to grow in one of two ways. And sometimes they can go in and out of both at different seasons of their life. But people grow either, one, by the grace of God, they are aware of the goodness of God in their lives, And they're able to recognize and acknowledge simple generosities that God has blessed them with. They appreciate the fact that they're healthy. They have a little bit of money left over and they're able to go out to eat and they count it as a blessing. And that gratitude of God's graciousness in their lives leads to gladness. And gladness fuels gratitude that fuels generosity, that fuels gladness, that fuels gratitude. And on and on it goes and it turns into a perpetual cycle. And for those of us who, by the grace of God, are able to spot the generosity of God in our lives. Because the truth is, you're not owed health. You're not owed money. You are not owed great friends. And you're not owed an amazing wife and incredible kids. You don't deserve any of it. But it is a gift from a loving, gracious father. And when we see it as such, we grow in gratitude. And the more gratitude we have the more gladness rules in our hearts. And the more gladness rules in our hearts, the more generous we want to be. And it leads to this ever-expanding joy in life through God, because your eyes are set on the goodness of God instead of what you are lacking. Which leads to the other way that people tend to grow. The second way people tend to grow is that they see all of that as something that they are entitled to. And when you feel That you are entitled, you will grow not in gratitude and gladness and generosity, but in contempt and stinginess. So, if you have the attitude that you deserve it, you are owed it, you are entitled to it, God is required to give it to you, you grow contemptuous against others and then eventually against God Himself. So, when you see others being blessed, you can't fully rejoice with them because that's an offense against you. Anytime anyone has more than you have, That's an affront to you. You you should have that. You deserve that. It's rightfully yours, and it leads to bitterness. Question for us all to consider this morning. Do you really want God to give you what you deserve? Since when did we become deserving of God's grace and mercy Shouldn't we simply be celebrating the fact that God, as Psalm 103 says, doesn't treat us as our sins deserve? The truth is an entitled spirit grows contemptuous, first towards the people that are experiencing blessing that you feel you deserve, and then eventually your contempt gets pointed at God with the question, how dare you not give me the things that I deserve? In fact, this spirit quite often is perpetuated in our young people today because the world says you deserve it, you're entitled to it, and you owed it, and none of those things are true. In fact, in some cases, parents are to blame for instilling this belief in their kids. Actually, if you want to get some insight into the maturity of your child, watch how they respond when they don't get something that they think they deserve. You will learn something, I promise you about the maturity of your child. For some of us, that's exactly how we interact with God. Our relationship with him is based solely upon getting what we think we're entitled to. And as soon as God doesn't answer the way we thought he should or that we deserved, we bail because we really didn't want Jesus. What we wanted was his stuff. So we either grow in entitlement and contempt, which eventually gets pointed at God, Or we grow in gratitude and generosity. It's why James says that conflict is birthed from this entire army of evil. Selfish desires that reside inside of us. Verse 4, James says, You adulterous people. Don't you just love the encouragement of James? Adulterous people. Here's what James means by that. You promise breakers. How many would be honest enough to say that you've broken some promises that you've made to God. We all have, if we're really honest. Some of us have have broken promises to God that we had no intention of keeping, even as we were making them, Like, like we could trick God or something. God, I'm never going to do that ever again, knowing full well that we have plans to do that very thing that night. This is how dark the human soul is. We're we're promise breakers. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 8 verse 7. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. James says that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And when we lack gratitude, gladness, and generosity, and instead when we walk in entitlement and contempt, that results in a lack of trust in God and a lack of patience with God. I, I don't trust Him to give me what I want. I don't trust him to be enough in my life. And out of my impatience, I'm going to take away my friendship from God and I'm going to give it to the world, that those who are most hostile to God will get my friendship. Now, for us to, to fully grasp this idea, we need to make sure that we understand what real friendship is. Because in the world of eight-foot privacy fences and back porches and neighborhoods with no sidewalks, You could live in your your house for years and never meet your neighbors. So friendship for us has really become casual acquaintance. In fact, social media has allowed us to connect with people in a way that 10 years ago was defined as illegal stalking. If, If people knew how much you were learning about them by scrolling through their feed, they would be freaked out. I promise you they would. You are not friends. At best, your acquaintances. And friendship in the first century, in the context of James's writing, would have been something very different. It would have been something sought after, something welcomed in their life, actually even something restrictive. Even if you look at Jesus's ministry, you get a sense of this. Jesus had the three, and then he had the 12, of course, and then he had... The 35 that he sends out in pairs, the 70, and then the 144, and then we finally see the 500. But Jesus intentionally chooses to spend the most intimate moments with the three. Listen, true friendships are restrictive because you can't go deep with everyone. You can't. It's impossible. Now, some of us need to go deep with someone. All of your relationships can't function on the surface. And at some point, you're going to have to make the space, inviting someone in, and you're going to have to pull back the veil of the very real spaces of your life. Let me say it this way. Rich, full friendship is fought for, it's restrictive, and it invites critique. And in James's context, friendship meant inviting someone into your life, committing to life, so deeply with them, having no secrets and welcoming their input into your life. So you see inconsistency in my life. You see my faith wavering. You see me losing courage. You see me selling out. You lovingly confront me for the good of my own soul and for the glory of God in my life. So James is saying, when you've become entitled and contemptuous, you start to move away from God and you remove your friendship from him. And instead of saying, God, you shape me, you mold me, you lead me, you use me, you move away from him and you look to the people that are most hostile towards him and you allow them to shape you and mold you and influence you. James chapter four, verse five now. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell within us? And then this beautiful line in verse 6, but he gives more grace. I love that. The jealousy of God can be a confusing concept. It's often been uh, misinterpreted. We think of jealousy being birthed out of fear or insecurity, and that is definitely not how the jealousy of God works. Let me just say this. God is not jealous about you. Rather, he is jealous for you and for his own glory that resides inside of you. God's jealousy is not built around anything that we have. Rather, his jealousy is based on the fact that he put his spirit inside of you. His glory is at stake. So his jealousy stems from the hope that your joy in him and in his name might reflect more perfectly his goodness and his grace, and that joy will only be fully experienced in knowing, loving, and following him. I love God's response to our promise-breaking tendencies, to our blatant rebellion, to our redirecting of loyalties to his enemies. I love that line in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, listen, grace increased all the more. Not just squeaking by, but all the more. So the law comes in, and it reveals that we're in trouble. Moses comes down the mountain. The people are worshiping a golden calf, and he reads the first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Whoops. Well, we've already blown that one. Commandment number one immediately reveals a trespass. Thou shalt not make any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down to them, for I, the Lord, Am a jealous God? And the further that Moses goes down the list, as the commandments were given, the trespasses increase. Don't lie. Uh-oh. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Whoops. Don't covet. Dang it. Don't have unforgiveness in your heart. you got to be kidding me, Right? And as the law gets delivered, the level of guilt increases. Look at it again. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The way it reads in the message is beautiful. Romans 5.20, but sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness that we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. Don't you love that? So Let me say it this way. There is no sin with more power than the cross of Christ. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Let me just say, for those of you that think God is done with you, fed up with you, this idea that he's yearning jealously to redeem your spirit, that is so far from your reality today. You think that you've sinned in ways That he couldn't possibly forgive. That's not what scripture says. So what's our response? Well, I'm glad you asked. James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Yes, I'm reading that correctly. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So as you and I are cuddling up to the enemy of the world, the volume of grace is turned up in our lives. And James says that our response to God's response is this. Submit. Let go. You know what's funny? We often have fear and stress about letting go of the very issues that bring fear and stress into our lives. The fear that that comes with entrusting our children to God, our marriage to God, our finances to God. And yet, they are the very things that we have fear and stress and worry about. I mean, if you're going to have fear and stress about them anyway, you might as well give them to God. I promise you. He will do a much better job with them than you and I will. And you say, well, Devin, that's easy for you to say. It's easier said than done. And you're right. I don't know all that's entailed for you to let go of some of those things. But here's what I do know. It comes down to you making the conscious, intentional effort to make the choice. Because when you're faced with a challenging situation, you have the option to choose. Do I trust God with this? Or do I trust myself with this? And I just want to commend you. There is a comfort that comes with letting go. Getting off of the throne of our hearts and admitting, I make a terrible king. I'm exhausted trying to be king. I'm terrible at it. I'm, I'm giving it my best, but I'm not doing a good job. God, will, will you take your rightful place in my life? And then getting to rest, as Jesus says, I've been just waiting for you to ask. And he gives more grace. And he rules in a way that brings comfort. So you submit. So how do you submit? James gives us a few ways in those remaining verses of chapter 4. In verse 7 he says this, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The first way for you to submit is to resist the devil. Let me just remind you this morning, you have a legitimate enemy and he will require resisting. Because you have real flesh in you that desires to rebel. And those two things come together and they create a powerful pool on our hearts away from the Lord and toward friendship with the world. And James says that the first thing you're going to have to do in order to submit to God is this, resist. If we're going to look at that, that word really briefly here, it's a word that demonstrates the attitude of one who is fiercely opposed to something and therefore determines that he will do everything with his power to resist it, to stand against it, and to defy its operation. So let me ask you a question. Have you really been resisting the devil and the influences of the world? Because James plainly lets us know that we must aggressively be determined to stand against the work of the devil. Just shutting your eyes and and praying some weak prayer and hoping that the enemy will withdraw is not going to work, friend. Your stand against Satan has to be firm, unyielding, and steadfast. Because let me tell you how he operates. He comes to assault your mind, not once, But many times, and he strikes the mind and emotions again and again and again, and he will keep on striking until he wears you down and your resistance is assaulted. And once the devil has gained access into your mind, he will begin to deluge you with the lies on top of lies. And if you choose to listen to those lies and believe them, the devil can successfully build a stronghold in your life from which he can begin to control and manipulate you. So let me ask you, instead of giving the devil the pleasure of filling your head with lies, why don't you start to resist him? You say, well, how do I do that? God has given you the name of Jesus and the promises of his word, so it's time for you to close your ears to the lies of the enemy and start quoting the word and commanding the devil to leave in Jesus' name. You say, well, that sounds a little kind of... Out there, that's that's a little too spiritual. That's a little too far. I'm not sure I want to talk to the devil. Look at Ephesians chapter six, verse ten. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, so that you can resist the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers. Of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth. I love the fact that the armor of God is contingent upon honesty. Everything is interconnected to our ability to be honest. If we're not honest, the entire armor falls apart. It begins with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet being fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which then you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Friend, it's time that you start believing this book, speaking its truths, and resisting the devil. The second way that we can submit is by this. We can reposition our heart. You resist the devil and reposition your heart verse 8, James says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Don't miss that promise that's given there. God commits himself to getting closer to you as you get close to him. You say, well, how, how do I, how do I do that? I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but you have to spend some time with him. And we do that through worship and prayer and introspection and the word. We don't read the Bible for facts and figures, but rather to gaze upon the beauty of God for you to be able to open the Bible and truly believe that he gives more grace and then receive the peace that surpasses your understanding. Let let me just say it this way. It's not just about knowing the Bible, but it's about knowing the God of the Bible. Some of us are going to have to reposition and refocus our attentions. You're going to have to start putting some real effort into changing the affections of your heart. You you say you want change. You say you want peace and deliverance, but you aren't drawing closer to God. And then let me also say, you also draw near to God as you engage in the beauty and in the community of the body of Christ you will get to know more of God and you will get closer to God as you get to know the children of God. That's why days like yesterday are incredible opportunities to get to know people more deeply, the people of God. And it's in our serving together and our laughing together and, yes, our sweating together, crying together, praying together, that you find yourself getting closer to God God has not just called you to himself, but he's called you to a people, other believers. Very, very simply, we need each other to experience the fullness of God in our lives. He has called us towards one another. And some of God's choicest blessings, I promise you, are residing in the people sitting around you this morning. That's why next month when we launch our fall semester of Connect Groups, I cannot urge you enough to dive into that. Find God in a deeper way as you experience life change in the context of relationships, transformation, healing, freedom. It all happens in community, not in isolation. I promise you, as much as you love this service, you love the worship, and you... Like the sermons, maybe. (laughs) As much as you love those things, when life happens, those things will be wholly inadequate. You may not know it now, but you need brothers and sisters that are embedded in your life. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. Trying to find community and genuine connection is difficult. It's hard. It's awkward. It it requires sacrifice that most of the time you don't want to give. Why? Because people will get on your nerves. <laughs> but here's, here's the good news. You're going to get on people's nerves too. And they will be long-suffering with you. They will be patient with your weaknesses. They, they will bear with one another, as the Bible says. Hear hear me. Everyone look right here. Don't live an isolated life where you think because you read your Bible and come to church on Sundays that you're getting the best that God has for you. Let me me just say it this way. We are refined best in the furnace of relationship and community. We, We will be exposed in our human nature, exposed in our pride, exposed in our fears. Doesn't that sound awesome? <laughs> but, it's, but it's in that exposure that God sanctifies and he matures us, drawing closer to God, and he'll draw closer to us. So we submit to him. We resist the devil. We reposition our heart. And finally, the third thing that we do to submit is this renewal, repentance, and remorse. Verse 8, the second half of verse 8, chapter 4, wash your hands, you sinners, in case you've forgotten who you really are, James reminds you, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I love this, because James says, not only are you to be serious about the sin that is visible and seen, washing your hands, but also to be aware of how wicked And dark your heart and mind are. So that our attention to sin is not just directed towards our actions and what everyone sees, but also towards our desires and our thoughts. And James admonishes us to purify our hearts and our minds. Some of us, some of us need to make the choice to fight in the arena of our minds. You know that nobody talks to you more than you do? Nobody talks to you like you talk to you. From from the second that you wake up in the morning, there is an internal dialogue happening. What are are you saying to you? I'm telling you, you you pay attention to that and you will have the urge to start praying for purity. I promise you. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Look at this. Be careful what you think because your thoughts run your life. Because if all you've done is washed your hands and you're like, I'm good. But your your heart and mind are filled with wicked thoughts and desires about other people, about God, about what you think you deserve. James says there needs to be a renewing in our heart and in our mind. Verse nine. So grieve. Mourn and wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You're thinking to yourself, no, I, I thought I remember hearing that as my mourning to gladness. No, no, no. In this verse, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You talk about something that just flies in the face of our culture today. Mourning? Wailing? Wailing? What are you talking about? In a world where sarcasm and levity and lightheartedness and and superficiality is the drug of choice. Don't don't give me anything heavy or challenging or that makes me feel bad about myself. I just want someone to make me feel good. In fact, I want church to be that. I want want home to be that, work to be that, and entertainment. James is having none of it. He says, mourn, grieve, Weep and wail. Why? Uh, the Puritans were known to pray for tears. They would pray to be grieved by their sins, so much so that they felt like the weight of the rebellion against God wasn't fully being owned and expressed unless it was done with their tears. They would They would literally ask God to help them to mourn. So here's the question. When was the last time you saw your sin for what it really was? When was the last time you were, you were moved to tears by your own depravity, your need for God? You know, this is, the, this is the challenge when you decide to teach line by line, verse by verse. Lord knows everything in society today says, skip over these verses sadly everything in church culture today says to skip skip over these verses keep it light chipper funny tell me how great everything is and yet it's in the dirt through the tears and the snot that the grace of god sends us into the orbit of joy you remember the woman caught in adultery she's busted she's naked and ashamed she's she's thrown before a mob That according to law is justified in wanting to stone her to death. The law says she dies. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus says, let the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, oldest to youngest, they drop their stones and leave. And then Jesus picks up a rock and he pelts her. (laughs) No. No, can't even believe you thought that. (laughs) Now, in her tears and her snot and her shame, the Bible says that he picks her up. And don't, don't miss this. He lifts her face. The son of God, the creator, the sustainer of all things, lifts this woman's face. Her guilt is never in question. It's the most shameful, despicable moment of her life. And he looks at her and he says, has no one condemned you? neither do I go and sin no more. You see, it's in the brokenness of our sin that the forgiveness and grace of this jealous God who gives more grace, it launches us into the orbit of joy. And the recognition of that kind of grace realized in our lives brings about, it should bring about a humility that God will exalt. We've seen it already a couple times in this text. God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Let me just say this. Humility goes a long way. Taking the humble route will get you much further. Verse 11. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Those that have experienced this kind of grace, those who have mourned and repented and had true remorse, those that have had their faces lifted, those that now understand that he gives more grace, they now become an expert, not in the weaknesses of their brother and sister in Christ, but in their strengths. And they rejoice in the blessing of God moving in their lives so they don't tear one another down. They lift them up. Question for you. Are are you more apt to see the shortcomings in others or the strengths of others? Are you more prone to, to identify where somebody needs to grow up? Or are you more apt to celebrate what God is currently doing in them? I'm not talking about being able to discern something. I'm talking about judgment and condemnation a subject james has touched on several times do you feel the need to tear people down to exalt yourself if that's the case you might need to go back and find real grace for yourself do you speak life or are you more prone to point out where people have fallen short james says that when we walk in wisdom godly wisdom and we truly understand the grace of God and we submit to him, quarrels and fighting and judgment starts to dissipate. It's not that we don't have them, but we'll be quicker to own our own responsibility. We'll be quick to forgive. We'll absorb things that we might normally try to pin on someone else. What if, What if we became more in tune with how God was growing each other and what he was doing in each other? And our speech and our conversations would revolve around that. Not what they need to become. Just be an encourager. Be someone that speaks life and blessing over people. John chapter 13, verse 35, final verse of the day. Jesus says this, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, it's it's by our love for one another that Christ is most visibly seen, savored, and worshiped, and that's when he becomes attractive. So where where have we reveled in the defeat or the demise of others? Where are you possibly even hoping for those things in someone's life? Where where do you need to resist the devil? Where, Where do we need to take a stronger stand against the attacks of the enemy in our minds, in our families, in our hearts? Where where do we need to reposition our focus, our attentions, our hearts? What what do we need to confess today? Where where do we need to stop waiting on the other person to come to us? Where Where do we need to apologize what, what do we need to repent of? Because we all we all need a renewal of the heart. It's in our renewing that we find the faith and the ability to truly submit to God. Thanks again for joining us. If you want to join us on Sunday, we meet at 1030 a.m. Right next to Wilson Central High School. Or check us out online at connectchurchtn.com. Thanks so much and have a blessed day.